Would you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6? Thank you. Last Sunday, we began a new series, and Pastor Jason got us off to a good start as we are going to look at selected passages in the book of Isaiah. This is a wonderful book, and we're just kind of dipping our toes in the water here, if you will. We're going to look at 11 passages this summer that talk about the nature and character of God. And um, it is something that I hope will whet your appetite. If you haven't read through the book of Isaiah in a while, it is a great book. Jason shared how it's really like a mini Bible in itself in terms of its scope and what it shares about the Messiah who was to come. So let me pray for us as we begin. I'm not going to read the text at the start. We'll read it as we go through the passage itself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We come to hear from you, from your word. And your word is true. It has power to convict us of sin. It has power to change our hearts and our minds. It shows us the way in which we are to live that pleases you. It helps us to know your Son, our Savior. And it gives us a greater vision of who you are, your majesty, your holiness, your beauty, your worth. And Father, I pray that as we look at this passage in Isaiah this morning, that you would speak to us and open our eyes to see your glory, your greatness. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have ever driven in the mountains, you know how beautiful they can be and how the mountains tower over the landscape that surrounds them. And I want you to think of that as we come to Isaiah chapter 6 because this particular chapter towers over the chapters that surround it. In chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah begins by describing the condition of Israel. And he describes how far Israel had fallen away from God and their sin. And yet when we read the list of things that were said about Israel, the indictment that was there and the sins that they were dealing with as a nation, we can't help but think of our own country as well. We saw how Israel described their sin of being proud and self-confident. They were religious without a relationship with God. I think of America where so many people would say or express the sentiments in God we trust and yet have no desire to do what he says. I think of Israel was described as being boastful in its sin even, lovers of pleasure, lovers of the things that they enjoyed but not lovers of God. And they had turned their back on him in rebellion. But scattered throughout Chapters 1 to 5, God also gives us a picture of what Israel would be in the future. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he gives this description of a day when the Lord's mountain, the mountain of the Lord's temple, would be established as chief among the mountains. It would be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. There would be a day coming when people from many nations would come to worship the Lord and hear the word of God. There's a day coming when wars and conflicts will end. And it says that he would judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. 
and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Can you imagine that day? That day is coming, and it is just as certain as all of the prophecies about the Messiah who would come and all that Jesus accomplished. This is the word of God, and it will happen in its time. In chapter 4, he gives another beautiful picture of what is going to occur in the future. He said in chapter 4, verse 2, that in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord is a phrase that refers to the Messiah. The Messiah is called this branch who would come, this shoot that would come up from the stump of Jesse. And in that day he will be beautiful, glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, holy to the Lord. God's going to remove their sin. He's going to remove the filth that is on them and they will be his people and he will be their God. And so here we have these beautiful, outstanding prophecies that are given. And Isaiah must have wondered, how, Lord? How could sinful Israel become servant Israel? How could these things happen? How could this nation that had fallen so far be restored again? Isaiah wrestled with some of the same questions that you and I may feel when we think about America. Can America return to God? Have we gone too far in our sin? What would it take for a great awakening to spread across our nation once again? Well, the answer is found in chapter 6, the passage we're going to look at this morning. John Oswald, in his commentary, said it like this. He said that sinful Israel will become servant Israel when the experience of Isaiah becomes the experience of the nation. When the experience of Isaiah, his repentance, his turning to God, becomes the experience of the nation. What we see in this passage is that what all of us need is a personal encounter with the living God. Nothing's going to change until that happens. Nothing's going to change in our heart, our attitude, our lifestyle until we meet the living God. And for Isaiah, that encounter was dramatic in this vision that he saw. Let me read it for you. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah's call came in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a good king. He came to power when he was 16 years old, and he would reign in Jerusalem for 52 years. 
Israel would prosper under his reign. They would dwell securely in the land. Uzziah had an army of 300,000 men ready at his call. And Israel was strong, they were powerful, they were secure. But as his power grew, so did his pride. And sadly, Uzziah, at the end of his life, did a very foolish act. There was a time when Uzziah took the censer to offer incense to the Lord in the temple, something that only the priests were to do. And he took this censer and he went into the temple and the priests confronted him and they said, Uzziah, what you are doing is not right. This is not for you to do. This is the work of the priests. And Uzziah became angry and while he was raging at the priests, leprosy broke out on his face. And he knew that God had struck him. And the priests ushered him out of the temple Uzziah would live in seclusion the rest of his life and he would die as a leper. Israel had grown as a nation. They were secure, they were prosperous, but they they became proud and they turned their back on God. And in that year when Uzziah died, Isaiah had this vision of the Lord. And you can think of it this way. If you were living at that time, you would have mourned this man, this great king who had passed away, and you would have wondered, what is the next king going to be like? What will his son be like? Will he be honest? Will he be fair? Will he be a good king? Or will we return to the wickedness that we have seen? And yet what Isaiah saw was the true king the king who reigns over men and nations. And it is a powerful statement that that is where our focus is to be. Our confidence is not in our earthly rulers, it's not in presidents, it's not in kings. Our security is in the living God. And Isaiah saw this glorious vision of the true king who was seated on his throne in the temple. He is unmoved. He is there in might and power. He is high and exalted. And Isaiah saw this glorious vision where he couldn't even describe all that he saw. All he can say is that he saw the train of God's robe fill the temple with glory. Isaiah saw the angels who surround God. They are called seraphs. And seraphs, that word means burning ones. It's the only place where that word is used to describe the angels, these burning ones, these glorious creatures that surround God in his temple. And I want you to notice their reverence, that even the angels in all of their brilliance cover their faces in the presence of God. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet, their person in humility. And with two wings, they fly. They are ready to serve. They are ready to do God's bidding wherever he would call them or send them. They are a model of humility and service and worship, the kinds of things that God wants to see in us. And they continually cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. Some ancient commentators viewed this trisagion, the thrice holy declaration of God, as a reference to the Trinity. More recent commentators will point out that it is the strongest way to state the superlative in Hebrews, or in, in the Hebrew language. When the angels think of God, the one word that they use to describe him more than any other is holy. But he isn't just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is pure and righteous and true. There is no flaw. There's no shadow in him. He is glorious. He is brilliant. He is wholly other, separate from his creation, and yet intimately aware of all that is going on in our life. It may be that it is a reference to the Trinity because in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, verse 41, John quotes from this passage, Isaiah 6, and then he adds this comment. He said that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. Isaiah saw the living God and he saw Jesus in his glory, and he wrote about the Messiah. All the earth is filled with his glory. All of creation points to his wisdom, his power, his majesty. It is there for those who have eyes to see. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans 1 when he talked about the heavens just declaring this glory of God. And what we can learn from them is God is powerful, he is eternal, he is creative, he is wise, he's sovereign over all that he has made. And I think of how the world that does not know Christ looks at the Christian and thinks that we are fools to believe in God and fools to follow a crucified Savior. And yet we who know Christ, we look at the world and we think, how can they not see it? How can they not see his handiwork and everything that he has made in all of creation? It shouts and declares his glory. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the living God. It is a work of grace that enables us to see what is there before our eyes. And when those scales fall off and God does his work in our heart, we wonder how do we miss it? How do we not see it before it is so obvious and plain? And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts of the thresholds shook. Isaiah saw the Lord and he would never be the same again. You know, there's an interesting story that was told from the Middle Ages about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was a medieval theologian, and he created one of the greatest works in terms of intellectual achievements of Western civilization when he wrote his Summa Theologica. It is a massive work. There are 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, 10,000 objections that he answered. Thomas tried to gather into one place, into one book, all of truth. 
covering anthropology, science, ethics, psychology, political theory, theology, all under God. But on December 6, 1273, Thomas abruptly stopped his work. While he was celebrating Mass in the chapel of St. Thomas, he caught a glimpse of eternity. And suddenly he knew that all his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he decided to never write again. When his secretary, Reginald, tried to encourage him to do more writing, he said, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all that I have written seems as so much straw. Even the greatest human minds cannot fathom the greatness of God. Can you imagine that? Pouring out your heart, life work, writing about the glory of God, and then in a moment you have this vision of his greatness and his beauty, and you think that everything that I've written is just straw. I can't put it into words. I can't say it better than what Isaiah said here in his word when he describes the Lord is holy, holy, holy. What people need more than anything else is a personal encounter with the living God. No amount of arguing or persuading is going to do it on our part. It is a work of God, and so we pray that the eyes of the blind might be open. We pray that God would open our eyes to see more and more of his glory and character and righteousness and beauty. And in viewing God, we are changed. For some, those encounters are dramatic, like Isaiah or Aquinas. But for most of us, those encounters come through his word, through his spirit as he speaks, through our times when we gather in worship, through those times when we are still and come before him. And secondly, what we see in Isaiah is our hearts need to be cleansed from sin. We see that in verses 5 to 7 when Isaiah has this vision and his response is to say, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The vision that Isaiah saw produced sheer terror in him. Why? Because he saw his sin. It brought this overwhelming awareness of his sin and guilt before a holy God. And so he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. Literally, I am a dead man. For Isaiah knew that no mortal man can see God in his glory and live. And every occasion where someone, quote, saw God, God's glory was always veiled or hidden in some way, some measure, otherwise we would die. Isaiah was aware of his own sin and he identified with the sins of his people. Just as Daniel did in Daniel 9 when he had this great prayer of repentance confessing his sin and the sin of the nation. 
And we come on behalf of our land and we intercede for ourselves and for our people. And we cry out, God, would you forgive us our sins? Would you do that work? Would you send your spirit in this mighty wave of awakening once again? This was Isaiah's confession of sin. And it stood in contrast to the religious leaders who did not confess their sin. When they were confronted by it in chapter 1, their response was more like, who? Me? Guilty of sin? That's not us. I mean, aren't we doing all the things that God asks, all the religious rituals? Don't we go to the temple? Don't we pray? Don't we do this? But their heart was far from God. Genuine confession of sin is a mark of a true believer. An understanding of our guilt before a holy God. Recognizing our need for a Savior. Admitting what we have done in our heart and in our life and bringing that before God in confession. And it is God himself who provides the cleansing. He's the one who directs one of these angels to take this live burning coal from the altar. It doesn't say which altar it came from. In the temple area, there were two altars. There was the bronze altar where the sacrifices of blood would be made. And there was the incense altar where intercession was made for our sins. And I think it doesn't specify because I think both are implied in this work. Both point to the work of Jesus Christ. One pictures Christ shedding of blood for our sins as the Lamb of God who would die for us and whose blood would cover our sins. The other pictures his role as our great high priest, the one who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. And the angel touches Isaiah's lips with the coal and his sin and guilt is removed and atoned for because of the work of Christ. The point is that only God can make us clean. We can't do it in ourselves. There was nothing Isaiah could do to make himself right with God. And this gift of salvation is what was freely offered to all in Isaiah chapter 1 in the passage that Pastor Jason talked about last week. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. But Israel rejected it. If Israel was going to serve the Lord, they needed to come to a confession of their sin and a recognition that they could only find salvation and forgiveness in God. And thirdly, what we see in this passage is this invitation from God to join in his work and on our part, we need to answer his call. Look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, O Lord? 
And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Isaiah heard God's voice. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? I want you to note the plural there. Who will go for us? I think that this is an indication of the Trinity. That expression is found only in Genesis 1.26 when God said, let us make man in our image. The Trinity, again speaking, it's found in 11.7 when God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. When God again in his majesty in the Trinity spoke and the nations were scattered. And yet what we see here is this call comes and Isaiah willingly and freely responds to it. In calling the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you have this interesting thing that goes on. There is this sense of predestination. For example, in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah will say, this is the Lord speaking, and the Lord said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so here is this example of how God calls individuals to his work and he said, before you were even born, I appointed you for this task. That's predestination. That's God's sovereign work in the life of individuals. And yet, it is a call to be freely answered. So when the invitation comes, Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I am willing to go. I'm willing to do what you are asking me to do. Evangelist Louis Palau writes that during my first year at Multnomah School of the Bible, the torchbearer's founder, Major Ian Thomas, spoke at our chapel service. He called about how it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. And then one day Moses was confronted with a burning bush, this bush of sticks and branches, this ugly bush, if you will, in the wilderness. And yet Moses had to take off his sandals. Why? Because God was in the bush. And Major Thomas said God was telling Moses that I don't need a pretty bush, I don't need an educated bush, I don't need an eloquent bush. Any old bush will do as long as I'm in the bush. And if I'm going to use you, it will not be you doing something for me, but it will be me doing something through you. And Louis Palau said, I was that kind of bush, a useless brunch of a bunch of dried up sticks. I could do nothing for God. All my reading, all my studying, my modeling myself after others was worthless unless God was in the bush and only he could make something happen. 
When Thomas closed his message, I ran back to my room, and in tears I prayed in my native Spanish. My spiritual struggle was finally over. I would let God be God and let Luis be dependent upon him. Any old bush will do as long as God's in the bush. I love that. What he wants from us is our availability. It's not our skills. It's not our stature. Or it's not the things that we've accomplished in our life that qualify us to serve him. It is God's presence in our heart. And when God is at work in us, he uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. To be a witness for Christ, to share the gospel with others, to be his prayer warriors, to be his laborers who serve together in the kingdom. And Isaiah's ministry here would not be easy. It would be a ministry of judgment, a hardening of hearts, a closing that was going on because Israel had gone so far that God now in his sovereignty was saying enough and Isaiah would preach his words and share what he has that we read today and their hearts would become closed more and more. Jesus would quote these verses, verses 9 and 10 are quoted in all four gospels They're quoted two times in the book of Romans, and I actually noticed last night when I was looking at this again that they are also at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. That's really interesting to me, that Jesus also was preaching this message of judgment, a hardening of hearts because of how far they had turned away from God. Isaiah would ask, how long, Lord? And God will answer, until cities are ruined and without inhabitants, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and only the stump remains. Judgment would come in the form of the Assyrian nation first, then the nation of Babylon. Israel would be carried away into captivity. But out of that stump that remained would come new life. In chapters 7 to 12 that follow will describe the hardening of Israel, but also the coming of the Messiah. It contains those great passages that we often use at Christmas, that a child will be born to a virgin, and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That this child would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders and he would be called the Wonderful Counselor the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and of his government there will be no end. Judgment, hope. There is mercy, there is grace for all who will turn to him. I want you to think about Isaiah's calling. Isaiah didn't seek God, God chose him. God always takes the initiative in our life. It is God who reveals himself to man. And we see that in verses 1 to 4. It's God who cleanses our hearts from sin. He's the one who's provided this great work of atonement. It is God who calls us to join in his work, just as he does Isaiah. 
And our part is to respond and to obey. 150 years ago, there was a couple living in England who wondered what God was calling them to do. They had been married for 10 years, and William Booth was searching, praying, asking God to show him what it was that he wanted him to do with his life. His wife, Catherine, was a good Bible teacher, and she had been invited to speak in London, and while they were there, William took a late-night walk through the slums on the east end of London. And what he saw there broke his heart. He saw people living in filth and squalor. He saw every fifth building was a pub, a bar. He saw bars that had steps at the counter so little children could even climb up and order gin. And that night he told Catherine that I heard a voice sounding in my ears, where can you go and find such lost as these? And where is there a need so great for your labors? And he said to his wife, darling, I have found my destiny. And later that year, 1865, the couple opened the first Christian mission in the London slums. Their life vision was to reach the down and outers that others had ignored. And that simple vision of two people grew into the Salvation Army, which now ministers through more than three million members in 127 countries. Sometimes God calls us to work in foreign lands. Sometimes he calls us to work right here at home, right where we live. But it is God who calls. And he opens our eyes to see the needs of people around us and the things that he has given us a passion and a gift to do. And my question is, where is God calling you to serve and what is it that he wants you to do and will you answer his call let's pray father i want to thank you first of all for your grace for your grace in sending jesus to be our savior who has atoned for our sins I thank you for your work of mercy that opens our eyes to see your son and to come to know him as our savior. And if anyone is here today and you've never made that commitment, I pray that today you would turn to him in confession and repentance and ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be your savior and Lord. Father, there's a work that you want all of us to do. It is to join together as we labor as a church in this community to be a witness for Christ. It's to join together as we send out labors and resources and prayers for the world. Father, there may be something specific that's going on right in our neighborhood, right where we work or in our schools that you want us to do. And I pray, just like you did for William and Catherine Booth, that you would open our eyes to see what is our calling. Where is it that we are to serve as we follow Jesus? In his name we pray, amen.